0: Yeah, it's good to be here. It's good to see you all. Um, I've had a great time during the last nine weeks so far of the internship. And it's a privilege to come and share the Word of God with all of you tonight. So um, let's pray. Well, first, before that, um, I do just want to mention that, um, you know, tonight, the passage that we're going to be looking at is a little bit more um, challenging than usual. Uh, The topic is a bit difficult, Um, but my prayer is that we will benefit from our time in God's word tonight. So um, just with that heads up, let's pray, and then we'll jump right in. Okay, let's pray. Dear gracious Father, you are good and you do good. Lord, you are worthy of all praise. And... um, Lord, even though we're diving into your word tonight, and indeed it is a very heavy and weighty passage, um, Lord, we just pray for your blessing, for your grace, Um, Lord, for you to just bless our time tonight. We need this passage. I know I need this passage. So Lord, please work in our hearts, Uh, help us to deal with the weightiness of it. Um, Not to, I don't even know, not to react in a strange, confused way, but just to recognize Lord that in your sovereign grace, you have ordained all these things. And in your perfect wisdom, you have made known all these things to us. And in your loving kindness, you indeed have saved many countless people throughout history by the loving life and death, sacrifice and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So help us Father in this time, as we turn to your word to indeed benefit from it, to be encouraged by it, no matter the difficulties that it may present our hearts. Lord, we know you are with us. We know that you have a purpose in all of these things. May you be glorified, and Lord, may the Lord Jesus Christ be formed in our hearts, and may we be transformed by your word. We pray this humbly in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so tonight we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. So, Luke 16, verses 19 to 31. Um, Go ahead and turn there, and and I'm going to read the passage first, um, just so we can kind of get a brief introduction to it, and then we'll begin to, to unpack what the Word of God has here for us. So Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. The Word of God reads, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish. In this flame. But Abraham said, child, Remember that you, in your lifetime, received your good things, and Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Immortal and continual and perpetual, unending and eternal. All of these words could be used to describe the endless joys of heaven. But all of them can also be used to describe the eternal suffering and anguish that people will endure in hell. And while there are countless people who will forever enjoy being in the presence of King Jesus and being comforted with eternal rest, there is also an untold amount of people who will forever be in anguish and who will never have a moment of rest as they suffer under the wrath of God for their sin. Whenever we hear the blessings and joys of being in heaven, we listen with such thanksgiving in our hearts and such great anticipation to be with our savior. We love to hear about the future of heaven and rightly so. But when it comes to the eternal fire of hell, and the reality that there are a multitude of people on their way to hell, we don't want to hear about it. And we don't want to think about it. The reality of hell is such a difficult topic to set our minds on, but it is nonetheless necessary. We need to be reminded about the reality of hell because there are countless people in our lives and all around us who will eventually end up in hell. And we need to hear Jesus' warning about hell, lest any of us be on our way there without realizing it. And even though speaking and thinking about the topic of hell is never easy, we need to do it because it reminds us and it encourages us on the need to evangelize the need to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to the lost. And we need this passage tonight because there is a real danger of people who just meander through life and through Christian fellowships and through church, but they never really consider the claims of Jesus Christ on their own lives. We need this passage tonight Because there is a danger of people who eventually fall away. Because they don't consider the reality of hell and the fact that it is Jesus himself who warns us the most about it. And we need this passage tonight because, quite honestly, we all need to have an urgency and a fervency to reach out to those heading towards eternal damnation in hell. I know this past year has been a strange year. We've all spent time with our family, our friends, our loved ones. And that has been a good thing. There's nothing wrong with that. But we need to remember that there's a whole world out there that is perishing without Christ and heading into eternal judgment. They need Christ, and we have the message of salvation from Christ. So tonight, we're going to see this encounter with Jesus as he tells this story. It's not a historical account, but it's a story that he's telling to the Pharisees. And in it, he warns them that they are on their way to hell. And he also points them in the direction they need to go in order to enter heaven instead of hell. So let's begin by looking at verses 19 to 21. And we're here, we'll see the rich man and Lazarus in life. The rich man and Lazarus in life. It says again, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. And moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, this is a story from Jesus directed at the Pharisees. And Jesus began speaking to them in verse 15. Earlier in this chapter, Jesus had been teaching his disciples And he said to them in verse 13 that you cannot serve God and money. But then the text turns our attention to the Pharisees in verse 14. And it says there, the Pharisees who were lovers of money, they heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. In essence, the story about the rich man and Lazarus is told by Jesus to illustrate these truths to them in the most vivid way. And We're going to see how this is conveyed throughout the story. And back in verse 19, the story begins with this rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen. As we begin to understand the story, we'll see that Jesus is painting the situation of these characters all the way to the extremes. This rich man was clothed in purple and fine linen. These two articles of clothing would have been extremely expensive in those days. The fine linen was a white cloth and probably worn as an undergarment. And it would have been very costly and something that only the elites could have afforded. The purple garment was probably worn on top of that fine linen as an outer garment and also would have been extremely expensive. The work that goes into making these clothes is very labor intensive, hence making these um, clothing garments quite costly. But beyond just dressing in expensive clothing, this rich man also feasted sumptuously every day. Now, that would have been like having a huge celebration, having a lot of festivities every day, killing the fattened calf every single day. This rich man wasn't just rich, but he was beyond rich. He lived in splendor and he lived lavishly to the max. Let me give us a breather and put it like this. He, he wasn't going to sleep and walking around all day wearing Hanes as his undergarment, and Old Navy for his outer garment. No, this guy was wearing Louis Vuitton undershirts and Gucci suits. Meanwhile, he was eating from a five-star Michelin chef every day. They only make three-star chef Michelin chefs. <laughs> he had five. But then Jesus goes on, and he introduces this poor man named Lazarus into the story. And he's at the gate of this rich man's house. Now, just to clarify, this Lazarus, this was a common name. And so this man named Lazarus, we shouldn't confuse him with the other Lazarus that's well known in the Gospels. This is a story, right? This is Jesus giving this character in this story the name Lazarus. But the Lazarus in this story, he is a poor man, and he is also poor to the max. He's poor to the extremes. And not only was he poor, but he was covered with sores all over his body. And that would have made him ceremonially unclean to the Jewish mind. He was so poor that it says that he was laid at the gate, but perhaps a better picture description is that he was just dumped at the gate. The literal word there is that he was thrown at the gate, so he was just dumped there. And this poor man desired to be fed with whatever fell from the rich man's table. To make matters worse, even the dogs came and licked his sores. And now, you know, this isn't the cute little dogs that we see people carrying on airplanes and in their purse, or in a little cage, or the comfort dogs that people have with them when they're stressed out. That's not this kind of dog. Now, these would have been the street dogs that likely carried a number of diseases. Now, these dogs would have likely been eating trash and licking up dung off the streets. So this was not a soothing experience for this poor man. These dogs, in fact, were making him more miserable and not better. Now, how did this man get here? Well, we don't know. The text does not tell us, but his situation is so pitiful that it's hard to even imagine a man like this. We see poor, homeless people on the streets all the time, but this man wasn't just poor. He was suffering with these sores. He was likely a crippled man since he was unable to move even when the dogs came and licked him. And probably gave him even more diseases. This story begins with these descriptions of the rich man and Lazarus, and they're just stunning in their contrast, and how Jesus paints these pictures of these two men in the extremes. Now, one lives lavishly and eats all of the best food you could ever want every day, and the other is barely alive and thrown at the gate and just wants a few crumbs. One is covered with extravagant attire. The other is covered in nauseating sores. And one would have been exalted in human eyes, and while the other would have been seen as detestable. So, why is Jesus painting both the rich man and Lazarus in such opposite extremes of wealth and poverty? Why is he painting such these great contrasts between the rich man and Lazarus? Let's keep going, and, and we'll, we're going to see exactly why Jesus is doing this. Let's read in verses 22 through 26. This is the rich man and Lazarus in life after death. Verse 22, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Wow. Everything has been reversed. Verse 22 through 23 says that the rich man and the poor man died, but that the poor man went to heaven and the rich man went to hell. Oh, what an incredible reversal of circumstances. And this would have been absolutely stunning to the Pharisees. They would have been shocked. They would have been speechless. What? A rich man who is esteemed and held in high regard, being tormented in hell, and that poor, disgusting, diseased cripple in heaven with Abraham? He was licked by the street dogs and is unclean. How can he be in heaven with Abraham and the father of the Jewish nation, the father of the faithful? And how can the rich man be in hell? You can almost hear their minds going and going and thinking. Lazarus, who was attended by the street dogs, was then attended by angels and carried off into heaven? the Pharisees would have been astonished to hear that the rich man ended up in hell and not in heaven, in Abraham's bosom. Now, why is that? Well, in the Pharisees' mind, and frankly, this line of thinking exists even today, they would have seen the rich man as being blessed and the poor man as being cursed by God. Their theology was such that it was but guaranteed that the rich man would be ushered into heaven and the poor man would be in hell since he was cursed by God and as good as dead anyway. Remember that the rich man in the story is representing the Pharisees, and they would have been utterly shocked to hear the story and hear that the rich man ended up in hell. And after all, remember that the Pharisees were very religious people. The last time we were here, we talked about them, and we saw that they invented laws upon laws trying to keep the Old Testament law. They fully expected that they were on their way to heaven. They were Jews. They were part of God's chosen people. They were religious, and in their minds, they were keeping the Old Testament law. They were well off, so they believed that they were specially blessed by God, and they were well esteemed in the society and held in high regard. According to their thinking, they had every reason to assume that they would be in heaven when they passed on into the afterlife. So what was the rich man's problem? Well, remember back in verse 14 of the same chapter, it says that the Pharisees were lovers of money. They heard the teachings of Jesus that you cannot serve two masters, God and money. But the Pharisees ridiculed Jesus when they heard his teaching. And Remember in 1 Timothy 6.10, it says that it is the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. Not the money itself, but the love of money. There are plenty of rich people and poor people who love money and therefore sin. So this story is not saying that mere possession of money is a sin, but it's a story that's pointed toward the Pharisees and their love for money, and that is their real sin. So the rich man in the story, like the Pharisees, was a lover of money and not a lover of God. So now that we've understood a little more about this rich man, now how many people do you know that are similar to this rich man and believe that they're on their way to heaven, but in reality they're on their way to hell? They're religious, they call themselves. They say they're spiritual. They say they're good people. They pray, they fast, they give to the poor. They just want to do something good in this world. And they fully expect that they are on their way to heaven because they think that their good outweighs their bad. They might look similar to the rich man in this story. And things are going well in their life. They've just cruising along. They've gone to prestigious schools. They've got their master's degrees. They're driving Teslas. They've got the nice house. They've got a wife. They have prodigy children. Their kids are in the honor roll. They've got it made. But all of a sudden they die. And then they are shocked and astonished when they wake up in an eternity of hell. And sadly, they will be shocked upon their death, and they realize that they are under eternal condemnation and suffering forever in hell. And in a sense, we are shocked when we hear this story because we don't really think much about hell. On the surface, we just see people going about their lives every day, and they're just minding their own business, and, and we're minding our own as well. But in reality, the Lord Jesus has saved us from an eternity in hell. Meanwhile, all the unbelievers around us are heading straight into hell. So we need this passage. We need to be shocked as well about this reality of hell. I remember that Jesus told the the Pharisees very directly before that, that they are those who justify themselves before men, but God knows their hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Now he's painting this picture of this reality through this story to shock the Pharisees and to shock us. But it's better to be shocked now when it's not too late than to be shocked later when it's already too late. And that's part of the burden of looking at this passage tonight, because many of us know the Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And praise God for that. But what about our family members, our friends, our classmates who don't know the Lord? And are on their way to hell? And does this reality of hell strike you in the heart to have compassion on them? And do we feel this weight to evangelize to these lost people? Do we consider this reality of hell in our minds, and is it serving us as one motivation among many to reach out to the lost and to evangelize to them, to warn people about their need for Jesus Christ? And what if any of us don't know Jesus as our savior? And do we realize that there is a hell, there is an eternal punishment coming for those who don't know Christ? That the only way to escape eternal judgment is through Jesus Christ? And what will happen if you don't know Christ and you are to die tonight? And do you think that like the Pharisees, you're practically guaranteed on your way to heaven? That your good works will outweigh your bad and you'll be ushered into heaven? But remember again, before this, Jesus told them, that the Pharisees, that they were those who justified themselves before men, but that God knows their hearts. And for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So we must know, we must remember, you have to know the reality that the only way of being sure of going into heaven is to recognize your sin before a holy God to turn away from your sins, to turn to Jesus Christ, right? We know Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So, friend, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you need to know him. You need to make sure that you're not like this rich man who will end up in eternity in hell, but that you will be hopefully ushered into heaven because of this loving and saving work of Jesus Christ in your life. Now let's look again in verse 23. He says there, Jesus, in the story again that, and in Hades being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me may not be able and none may cross from there to us. Now here, Jesus gives us this brief picture of what it is like to be in hell. And since this is a story intended to provide a picture of the reality of hell, we should not build our theology of hell from just this one passage. It might seem like somewhat a strange story, but we have to remember that this is not a comprehensive explanation of hell. But we can highlight the parts that are also revealed about hell and other parts of scripture. So this is not the end-all-be-all passage on hell. There are many other passages that explain this reality of hell to us. But we're going to look at a few aspects of hell that are shown in this passage. So there are five aspects I want you to see in this passage about hell, five aspects. So the first aspect of hell is this conscious anguish. In verses 24 and 25, we see that the rich man is in anguish in this flame. He is conscious. He is aware. He knows that he is in pain and suffering. And as you may be aware, Jesus is the person who speaks the most about hell in the entire scripture. He also describes hell as an eternal punishment, eternal fire, the unquenchable fire, amongst other things. So there is a conscious pain and a suffering in hell. Notice in verse 23 that the rich man is also in torment. Now This could be described as severe pain or torture. Now, whether this pain, this torment is physical or mental, the point is, is that he is in anguish and in severe pain and suffering in hell. Now, the second aspect of hell that I want you to see here is that there is no mercy. There is no relief. In verse 24 through 26, I want you to notice that the rich man makes a request for mercy from Father Abraham. And he asks him to send Lazarus to give him a small drop of water for a tiny bit of relief from the pain and suffering and anguish. Now, this request of the rich man is denied. In the previous life, he could have easily displayed an act of mercy to the poor man by providing relief and giving him some food and some care. But now, in eternal life, it is impossible for him, the rich man, to get any relief whatsoever from his suffering. So there is no suffer- there is no relief. There is no mercy. The suffering will not be relieved in hell. And just to help us get a get a grip on this. Have you ever been in a situation that you've been under so much intense pressure that all you wanted was just some relief? Maybe it was a family issue, final exam, some kind of ethical decision, a dilemma that you were trying to work your way through. And you just wanted some relief from that pressure. Now, I'll give you a personal example. So some of you may know that several weeks ago john had a a minor surgery and and thankfully the surgery went well it it was a one day thing he got out of the hospital the same day the doctor gave us some ointment that we needed to apply to him to help him heal properly that the surgery would be a success that night we tried to apply the ointment and i'll spare you the details of of what that was like (laughs) but let's just say he was in pain And he was extremely resistant to us applying the ointment. He was crying and screaming, and he absolutely hated it. Let's just say that he was in anguish. Now, this uh, application of the ointment was an extremely painful process, both for him, but also for me. See, to put my son through this experience, not only did he hate it, but I hated applying the ointment as well. So not only was he in anguish, but I was in anguish because of the trauma of having to apply this ointment and hear my son screaming and crying uncontrollably during this entire process. And we had to do this thing three times a day. And honestly, that first day of doing this thing to him, it felt like an eternity. Because I was completely stressed out the entire day. I dreaded each time I had to go and apply this ointment to him. And I was in tears throughout the entire day. I was in mental anguish. And it was one of the worst days of my life to hear my son just screaming in terror. And I'm the one there trying to apply this ointment thing to him. After we put him to bed that night, and I mean, I went into the bedroom with Chen Pei, and I just broke down in tears. I, I just could not take it any longer. And I wanted any relief that I could get from this whole thing. And my low points in this thing, I, I, I didn't even really care what brought me the relief. I just wanted relief. But thankfully, thankfully, I did get some relief in this. Because I knew there were brothers in Christ that were praying for me. I knew that this thing was only going to take two weeks. I was praying to God for help the entire day of trying to do this stuff. I knew that my only hope was really in Christ to give me strength to persevere through this process. I I did get some relief in this whole thing. But the rich man in this story, he he gets no such relief in this. There is no relief in hell. There is no mercy. And even the painting from this picture, there is not a single drop of relief from his pain and his anguish. This is obviously very weighty to think about these things. But there is this third aspect of hell that we need to look at, and it's the reality that hell is eternal. In verse 26, it says that there is no way to get out of hell. There is this chasm that is placed between heaven and hell, and there is no way to cross it. The rich man is confined there forever, and there is no way for him ever to get into heaven. Now that aligns with all the other descriptions that we've heard uh, about hell and the rest of the scriptures. So no matter what this rich man does in hell, there is no way for him to escape it. He will suffer there indefinitely and eternally. And the fourth aspect I want you to see about hell is that hell, the punishment in hell is punitive. It is not remedial. It's punitive, not remedial. In other words, people in hell are suffering torment and anguish as a form of punishment. It's not an attempt to correct them. It's not an attempt to correct their sinfulness. It's not a means of paying for their sins until they're good enough to be allowed into heaven. Now that idea is not fully developed here, but we can see it in the rich man's attitude and thinking. The rich man is still a sinner. He has the same mindset that he had when he was alive. So if you see how he treats Lazarus and how he thinks about Lazarus, the rich man sees himself still as being above Lazarus. and He wants to tell Abraham to send Lazarus as his errand boy to go do whatever he wants. We'll see another example of that later. But the rich man is stuck in his sin, and he is not repentant at all. I think this is important. This is really helpful to us because this gives us an understanding of hell. And just trying to think about the fact that this is so terrible. And some of us might wonder, you know, is this justified? And does, do people really deserve to be in hell for all eternity? I mean, this is a hard pill to swallow. Nobody likes to talk about this. Nobody wants to think about this. It's so heavy in your heart, and just it can be overwhelming. But the fact of the matter is, is that people in hell never repent. They never turn away from their sins. They just continue in it forever. And even though that they're suffering because of their sins, they will not repent even in hell. So while this is a hard doctrine to deal with, it it is just. It's difficult, but it's just because it comes from God, and people do deserve it because they never, ever repent from their sins. Uh, In the 14th century, there was a, a, a writer, his name's Dante, right? He wrote this epic poem called The Divine Comedy, and in there is the also, a part of the Divine Comedy is his Inferno, Dante's Inferno. And part of that poem, he's, he's getting a tour of hell. And before he goes into hell, there's a sign that stands above the gate to hell. It says, abandon all hope, you who enter here. I think that's a fairly apt description of hell based on all the things we've been hearing and seeing in this passage. But there's at least one positive aspect of hell that I want us to give some attention. So, so I was discussing the passage with some other brothers, and one of them pointed out to me that, that, look, there's a comforting aspect of hell as well. So that's the fifth one. That there's a comforting aspect to those. what is that? It's comforting because there are those in this life who have suffered abuse, who have gone through untold injustices, And in this story, we see that Lazarus was suffering throughout life, but in heaven, he is comforted. We see that the rich man in this life enjoyed good things, but now he is in anguish. So there is this sense that in heaven and hell, all things will be made right before God. We know that in this life, there's so many sins that go unpunished, so many injustices that are never made right. But in the end, God carries out his justice and he is the perfect judge. We will judge everything rightly and administer the right rewards for the redeemed and the just punishments for the unsaved. So there's this level of comfort in knowing that the sins that are not accounted for in this life will ultimately be accounted for in hell. And again, I want to clarify that that we're not saying that it's righteous to be poor and sinful to be wealthy. Again, that's not what's going on here. So the rich man, we've seen the rich man and Lazarus in life, we've seen them in their life after death and observed a few aspects of reality in hell. That brings us to our last division here, the implications from eternity, the implications from eternity. Now verse 27 to 31. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is such a powerful interaction and a powerful testimony to the power and sufficiency of scripture. And Before we go into that, there's some other implications from eternity that we need to see first. The first implication is that there is this urgency to evangelism. There's an urgency to evangelism. Here we see the rich man making another request to Abraham to send Lazarus to his brothers to warn them about hell and to the torment that he is experiencing. The rich man is in torment in hell. He's getting no relief whatsoever. He wants to send this urgent message to his brothers to warn them not to come into this place of torment. And while he's stuck there forever, he's still a selfish sinner and unrepentant. But the message from the text is clear to us. Don't come here. Don't come to this lake of fire and this place of torment. Don't come to this eternal place of punishment and anguish where there is no relief. Warn other people. Tell others not to come here. This text, in a sense, is giving us a testimony from hell. And it serves as a great warning to all not to end up in hell. It's also a great motivator, it's a great motivator for us to consider the reality of hell and be motivated to go and evangelize to the lost. And yes, we rejoice because we have been saved from hell by the redemption that we have in Christ. But at the same time, we also mourn. We mourn for those who are on their way to hell. Because we know, we know that we are no better than they are, and that we deserve hell just as much as they do. But by God's grace, that we've been saved through Christ, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, that it is the message of salvation to all who would repent and believe in him. We have this message. We know this message. We believe this message. And this is the message that we must urgently give to those who don't know Christ. This reality of hell and our love for our neighbor is a great motivator for us to evangelize. The second implication that we need to see from this passage is that even though we go and we urgently and we fervently evangelize as we should, that the people will not repent. The people will not believe the message of Jesus Christ. The rich man makes his request to send Lazarus to warn his brothers. But Abraham replies in such a way that's perhaps not expected by us. It's not what we would have expected. He says his brothers have Moses and the prophets, right? Which is another way of saying they have the scriptures. They have the Old Testament. They have that. They have all that they need in the scriptures to repent from their sins and be delivered from the eternal flame. But the rich man insists that Lazarus must be sent to them. He insists that his brothers need a sign. They need a great sign. They need someone coming back from the dead to warn them about this place. And then they will repent. You and I today we have the benefit of living on this side of the cross. We have the scriptures, and we know that this is not true. We know that. People will not repent from their sins and turn to God, even if they do see someone raised from the dead. Now, let's consider two examples. Now, first, we have Lazarus, the other Lazarus from John 11. And he was dead for four days, and Jesus raised him from the dead. Lazarus came out fully alive out of the grave. But what were the people's response? And more importantly, in this case, what were the Pharisees' response? On John eleven forty five, 45, it says that some believed in Jesus, but others went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Later on in John 11, 53, it says that From that day, the Pharisees made plans to put Jesus to death. Upon hearing that there was someone resurrected from the dead and their response was not repentance, it was not worship of Christ. Rather, it was to go and try to murder the Messiah because their position in society was compromised. Now, what's even worse? Right. And if you were to keep reading the Gospel of John, you get to chapter 12, verses 9 through 11. And it says that as more people were coming and they were believing in Jesus Christ because he had raised Lazarus from the dead, the chief priests wanted to put Lazarus to death as well. This is the guy that they just rose from the dead and they want to go and kill him. I mean, they're not trying to find their repentance and all these things in this miraculous uh, resurrection from the dead. They want to go and kill this guy. So instead of leading the Pharisees and the chief priests to repentance and faith in Christ, the resurrection of Lazarus actually gave them more reason in their heart to go and murder Jesus and murder Lazarus. I think that's why Jesus, in this story, named this character Lazarus, so that we would remember the actual Lazarus that was raised from the dead and show that the Pharisees did not repent when they saw him. Now, a second example, of course, is the death and resurrection of Jesus himself, right? Jesus was publicly executed for all to see, even though he committed no sin, he committed no crime. And after three days, he was resurrected, and more than 500 witnesses saw him. But the Pharisees and priests tried to cover it up. They, They paid hush money to the Roman guards who were guarding Jesus's tomb, And what does this say about the hardness of heart of the Pharisees? And what does this say about the hardness of heart of all who reject God and his word? They saw these people, Lazarus, Jesus, who were raised from the dead. They did not repent. They didn't go and ask Lazarus and Jesus, hey, what was it like when you were dead? They didn't go and ask him these questions. They wanted to kill them instead. So in our story here, the rich man thinks his brothers will repent from the, if they see someone resurrected from the dead, but we know that they will not repent. And Abraham repeats that truth to the rich man. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So we need to remember the second implication from our text. We need to evangelize with urgency but we also need to realize that many people will not repent. That brings us to our third implication from this passage that, and that is the sufficiency of scripture. Now, Abraham's response to the poor man in the story is powerful. All right, think about it. The rich man wants someone to be resurrected from the dead to warn them about hell. And honestly, at first, that seems pretty reasonable if you saw someone that you knew who was raised from the dead and warned you about hell, I think you'd be pretty convinced. You would see, that would seem pretty convincing, would it not? But we already saw the two examples that it wasn't convincing to the people. So the problem isn't that they need more information, right? The problem isn't that they need more signs. The problem is that they have hard hearts and they do not want to listen to the word of God. They have all that they need in the scriptures to know about God, to recognize their sin, to know that they need to repent, to know that they need to trust in God to deliver them from their sin. All of that is laid out in the scriptures, even in the Old Testament, and much more so in the New Testament. All of that. Now, 2 Timothy three fourteen to 15. I'll just read these quickly to you. It says, But as for you, Timothy... Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, the scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Remember, at that time, it's only Old Testament. And that's what Paul is saying. You have what you need to make you wise for salvation. Hebrews four twelve to 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And there's one more passage that I want to share with you about this, and I think this is going to be encouraging to your hearts. So turn over please to Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55, it's a little longer, so I want you to follow along. Isaiah 55, verses six through 11. Isaiah 55, verses six through 11. He says there, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. We might be tempted to think that someone resurrected from the dead would be more powerful testimony than the word of God. But God assures us that he will accomplish all that he intends with it, that it will not be thwarted. It will succeed even in saving the lost. Now, Honestly, this doctrine of hell obviously can be quite overwhelming. And just thinking about it and imagining what hell must be like is enough to shake you and almost even paralyzed you. Even though the Lord has entrusted the message of the gospel to us, even though it is our responsibility to evangelize, and we must evangelize, the Lord has not left us alone in this endeavor. We must evangelize. We must do it with all fervency and strength. But I want you to remember that you and I cannot save anyone. Right. It is God who saves. Right. God uses us to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to others, but it is He who works in the hearts to bring them to salvation through the power of His Word. So people don't need more information, they don't need more signs. Right. People need to listen to the revelation of God in His Word and turn from their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior. Again, this is an incredible witness to the power of the word of God and the sufficiency of scripture. There's one last thing, though, that I want to mention tonight. I know we've talked a lot about hard things. It's hard to think about it. There's so many implications in the way we approach life when we meditate on the reality of hell. But there's one thing that I think will be helpful to all of us. And that is the reality that hell is not something that God takes lightly, right? The punishment of the wicked is not a pleasurable pastime for God. In Ezekiel thirty-three, eleven, it says, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? So God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. And although by his character, he must punish the wicked because he is a just God. He does not take pleasure in that, and neither should we. So as we go forth tonight, don't forget this story about the rich man and Lazarus. Don't forget about the reality of hell and our responsibility to evangelize. Meditate on this passage, feel the weight of the need to evangelize and give thanks to God for your salvation and trust that the Lord will use you and his word to reach the lost. Now let's pray. Father, thank you again for your amazing word. Although it cuts deep into our hearts many times. Lord, we know that your cuts are loving. We know that the things you do in our hearts is for our good and for your glory. Lord, thank you for this reminder of the reality of hell. Lord, indeed, we do mourn for those who will go there. But ultimately, Father, we trust you. We trust your wisdom and your sovereignty. Lord, help us to be faithful servants to you, that we would bring the message of Jesus Christ to those who need you, to those who don't know you, those who are on their way to eternity, Lord, without you in hell. Father, these are hard topics, but please burn it in our minds, burn it in our hearts. May we see the people around us, not as just Flippant human beings that don't love you and don't care for you. But Lord, help us to see that there are sinners in need of a savior and that we have the message of Christ for their salvation. Lord, help us to overcome whatever fears of man that we have in our hearts to bring the message of the gospel to them. Father, help us not to succumb to our own pride and selfishness. Lord, even I know I confess my own sins to you of that. Lord, help us to please be fervent to bring the truth to them that they might know you and be forgiven and not be in eternal hell, but be in eternal joy with you. Lord, we love you and we praise you and we just remember that you are good and you do good. Bless the brothers and sisters in Christ here tonight and Lord, give us that fervency that we so desperately need. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.